Welcome back, everyone, to Out of the Main, another episode of our Yacht Rock podcast. Captain John, are you familiar with Peloton? <laughs> wow, is that a bizarre question? Yes, I am. <laughs> Talk about a cold open. Yeah, geez. It's that exercise bike where you can, you know, get the personal trainer on screen and they have a song set list. Do you know they just launched a Yacht Rock playlist? I did hear exercise. that. Yeah. 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 It's probably awful, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah, who knows? It's almost got to not be Yacht Rock to make you want to exercise. I know. Yacht Rock makes you want to chill. So, But I thought that was interesting. A friend of mine sent that to me and he's like, I think Yacht Rock's having a moment. That's the culture, man. And I said, this is no mere moment. This is like, we're at the beginning of something. I don't think we're cresting yet. No. There's a pun. Mm. Um, Thank you. So it, it, we go back in time and we rediscover new things that we never knew existed. And then we're finding either artists from back then are still making music today or making music again, or there's brand new artists doing this right, sort of right. thing. And we got people getting back out touring that maybe had not for a while. So there's a, all this stuff is available. It's really great. And it's a thrill when we get to talk to the icons of Yacht Rock lore. Yeah. Uh, and on this podcast that we just created somewhat on a whim. And now here we are. We're talking to some of the legends, some of our heroes, some of the like awesome Yacht Rock artists of the day. And I guess we have one in the waiting room, do we not? We do. So let's bring in Derek Holt, founding member of the Climax Blues Band. Derek, welcome to the show. Hello. Here I am. And you're coming to us from where? I'm coming to you from Mallorca, a little island in the Mediterranean uh, off the coast of mainland Spain. Ooh, that sounds yachty. Nice. Yeah, very yachty. It is yachty. Very yachty. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough, my daughter, who is 25, she just got herself a job on a yacht. And she's currently a stewardess, second stewardess, on a yacht called Jaguar and sailing around Croatia. Wow. So he knows what he's talking about. There we go. And I, I keep trying to get her to um, book me as the artist on the band, as the entertainment, <laughs> you know. She's, she, there you go. It's not coming, well, not coming through yet. Not yet. But again, this moment may have arrived. So... Speaking of moments, I thought we would start maybe way back when, um, kind of, the, we, we like to ask people their origin story, and I'm guessing from your accent that you did not get your start in the L.A. scene like some of these Yacht Rock legends did, but uh, your band formed in Stafford, England, is that right? That's Walk right. us through kind of how you got together. Well, Stafford is right in the Midlands, it's in the middle of England, and um, as far away from the sea as you can get, to be honest. Um we were just some, just young lads who um, knew each other. We all played in varying bands, and we decided that uh, we would just form a blues band. And um, we were just playing in the local pubs and clubs, and we got better and better, and the audiences grew. And then we were found, or if you like, discovered by um, a guy called Peter Riley, who got us... Um, a viewing by a, by one of these people from EMI, and um, the guy from EMI said, "We're looking for a blues band to record. Do you want to come and do an album?" And we were we were all working musicians, well, we're working working day jobs and semi semi professional. Anyway, we said, "Yeah, we'd love to go and do an album," and we were invited to Abbey Road. Mm. Wow, the the infamous Abbey Road down in London, and um, and in we were in Studio One, the Beatles <laughs> were in Studio Two, uh, and Pink about Floyd an offer you were can't in refuse. Studio, Pink Floyd in Studio Three. Aye, aye, aye. Oh, and uh, so we were just, you know, we we went all came down to London in a van, and uh, young, you know, I was eighteen years old, you know. And uh, it was just incredible. We did two days, recorded an album, and it became our launching pad. Were you kind of, um, in your minds, like working towards wanting to get a deal, or was this just kind of side job? Because you said you guys had day jobs. We were just just young guys given an opportunity to make a record. Wow. And in fact, there was no talk of, um, no discussion about studio time or costs or what we were going to make out of it, we were just happy to be there, make a record, you know. I mean, no eye, no eye on the business whatsoever. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in one record then led to another record, which led to another record, and eventually we get to what a lot of the Yacht Rockers think of as the core Yacht Rock years, which is 1976 to 1984. Right. And I'm curious if 
there was anything emerging in this sort of L.A. sound, this West Coast, that you either purposefully or cognizantly said, mm, we should weave some of that into our blues band concept because it's a little bit different sound when you come up to the, uh, the gold gold plated. Gold, gold plated, yeah. Yeah, and then you have a, a, this breakout hit. So walk us through that if you don't mind. Well, we were, we were doing an album in Chipping Norton, another little village in England, uh, uh, with a producer called uh, Mike Vernon, who originally produced Fleetwood Mac, uh, the original Fleetwood Mac with Peter Green. Anyway, we delivered this album, which was called Gold Plated, to the record company, and they said, really, there's, uh, there's nothing really commercial on there. Uh, could you go back in the studio and try and write something more commercial? So we went to Air Studios in London, which belonged to George Martin, and um, we just went in there for three days and wrote the song, wrote Couldn't Get It Right. Now, you, you can say, where did that come from? We had no idea. All we wanted to do was m- make ourselves a, a commercial sounding record. Now, you could say we were influenced by the, the pop charts of the day, maybe over in L.A. or whatever, but it wasn't a conscious effort to, um, to, me- to write a hit. It was just to write something that people could dance to. Yeah. And... And, and of course, the, the the producer Mike Vernon, who who wasn't who didn't produce the record, he was really annoyed that we hadn't told him about the song. But we hadn't got the song. The song was written, <laughs> hadn't written it yet. Yeah, I mean, but it was one yeah. of those things as well. If only we could have written another half a dozen like that. It's just like um, out of nowhere. Well, you certainly did get it right with that one, but um, being a, oh, a, fantastic. Ba- a bass player, you know, obviously your your mind, you know, works in a way of thinking about grooving and dancing and all that stuff. So um, it, it, one of the th- takeaways that I would just, when I was listening to it more closely over the weekend, that I wanted some of our listeners to take away from it, I think what's really interesting is the chorus you know, we're so used to choruses bopping into big harmonies and stuff, but you guys do that chorus in like a three-part unison. There's the low guy, there's the guy in the mid-range, and there's the falsetto above that. That's me. You know, I, I've heard it used since then, because I always, my mind immediately went to, many years later, Huey Lewis, and uh, I Want a New Drug, where he sings the verses that exact same way, the, the three-part yeah. unison. I want a new drug. I don't know if there's, because you guys had three lead vocalists yeah. in the band, well, right? Well, I, I also think that, that was probably one of our trademarks, you know, yeah. was that we're splitting the vocals that way. Um, we had a uh, Colin Cooper had the deep voice, Pete Haycock, the guitarist, um, had the the mid range voice, and I was the high the high guy, you know. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and and it worked guy. really well, and it was um, yeah. In, in fact, the, you mentioned a few records. There was another band called Who are they called now? They, were, uh, they had Why Did You Do It. Why did you do it? Oh, I can't remember the name now. Anyway, we just we developed our own sound with the vocals and also I think with the sax and the guitar playing in unison, that became a trademark sound of the band, you know. Yeah, I and, noticed uh, it had 11 million, over 11 million spins on Spotify, which for a, a song that still tilts to an older demographic that haven't all, you know, kind of dove into the streaming world that's a lot of spins on spotify for a song well, I, you know, I still think it sounds great you know yeah <laughs> it does for, for that for back then 1976 back then it was uh, just we just recorded live and uh, off you go did the um i'm curious did the not the commercial success unless you want to factor that in as you answer this question but did the the writing success when you went into a song, you know, into a studio to record a song, and then something like that comes out. Did that have any influence in you? Just because I know you didn't totally change the sound of Climax Blues Band, but there was more of this weaving in R and B elements that seemed for the next four or five years. We've got the sax, as you mentioned, in that R and B. 
I mean, looking back on it now, that's what we say yacht rock is. It's got some R and B influence into the into the rock or into the blues. So, did you? Was that an influence for you when you everything clicked with couldn't get it right? Yeah. And then did you consciously go in that direction? Well, I think I think the song is is a blues. Really, mm. it's just a, a pop poppy type version yeah. of the blues, mm-hmm. and certainly the solo is a blues solo. Yes. Um, consciously or unconsciously i think we i think we actually nailed what the band was about with that song mm. even though prior to that we were just a 12 bar blues band you know we started mm-hmm. writing we started understanding how to write and and hopefully try and become a little bit more commercial did you feel that you had something special in that song before it was even released before you even saw sales numbers did you kind of feel it when you wrote then and there yeah i i I think i think we knew we were onto something Mm -hmm. and the thing is in england at the time there was a program called top of the pops which played top 20 top 20 songs on, on the tv so it was a bit like mtv um but the only way we could get on top of the pops because we hadn't got a backing track back in those days, we had to do it live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we did it live twice in a studio with an audience and wow. um, competing with the, the big guys that, that used to mime. You right. know, uh, yeah. I remember Stevie Wonder was on and uh, a few people like that, you know. Um, Chicago were on, were on it mm. at the time. And and they all had backing tracks. Backing tracks, yeah. We'd, ne- okay. we'd never heard of backing tracks. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, a blues band psyche is not about that at all. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we were just, yeah. Tom was sort of referencing, I guess, the Shine On album, which obviously was the next album. I yeah. When I listen to that, I hear some significantly strong commercial songs. Uh, the ones that jumped out to me, Making Love, uh, Mistress Moonshine. Yeah, I wrote that one. Um, and I want to get to one. Uh, well, there's one other I want to get to in a second. But did you have the label pressure after Couldn't Get It Right to say, okay, we need a hit on this next album? Or was it just you guys were going that way? I mean, because they, they weren't huge hits off of that record. But when I listen back now in, in retrospect, it's like, man, there is some really strong commercial-type material there. Yeah. It, um, w- well, when we get further on in this interview, there's a certain irony you know when I, when I love you comes up in the conversation okay um but i think i think consciously because of the the success of couldn't get it right i would say that we were certainly trying to write more commercially or be more appealing to a bigger fan base okay and and that's you, you can't survive on just playing the blues you know i mean right. we, even even playing live you know that people want to get up and dance and they want to sing along, you know. And so there was a, definitely a conscious effort. Well, you mentioned that um, it, it might come up a little later in I Love You, and that was the other song I was holding here that caught my attention because it seems like it's an early precursor to where I Love You ends up because you wrote a wonderful ballad on this album, on the Shine On album, um, and it is more keyboard oriented um electric keyboard introduces it but teardrops i was floored by that one yeah great i remember that yeah um, yeah, I think that was sort of like the start of me starting to raise my head a little bit, you know, rather than just being the uh, the bass player at the back. And you played too. the keys on that one too, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I play I play keyboards and I play guitar, and uh, but th- that was one of the things where my voice was starting to come, started to come through, and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. not as I say, not just the backing musician, right? As I, I we used to call it the stars and the rhythm section. You see, <laughs> yeah. Colin, well, Colin, I, Colin, and Pete were the stars, and we were we were the backing band, and uh, 
Mayankovsky. We know the feeling. I, I grew up as a, a bass player, and John cut his teeth as a drummer, so we know what it's like to sit in, That's right. in, in the yeah. background and behave ourselves. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I want to jump to, if we don't mind, the Flying the Flag album in 1980. Okay. And it did have this song that you referenced, and I can't wait to hear the irony. But talk about your voice, as you said, if it's kind of coming to the fore. The the tune, I Love You, which was probably, as people think of, the other major hit, right? The smash hit. Yep. And that is Yacht Rock to me through and through and through and through and through. Listeners of the show know I've talked about the song a lot. So. Yes, as have I. And that's my Now, this song has more some of the traditional elements because you've got the lush harmonies, right? Um, it's got some electric piano. So what is the irony of that song? And, and tell us, because uh, you wrote the song and you sang the song, correct? Yeah, the um, I'll, I'll try and put it all in a nutshell, really. Um, we, we had four albums for Warner Brothers, and Flying the Flag was the, the third one in the line. And um, we had, they sent over, Warner Brothers sent over to England a producer called John Ryan, who had uh, previous success uh, with people like um, Steely Dan and all that. And, um, no, Santana, sorry. But he, he came over to England to pre-produce the album and he said, has anybody got any more songs? And uh, I said, well, I've got, I've got this one called I Love You, but nobody likes it. And I got it on a, a demo on a cassette, and I played it him in, in this little studio, and he said, God, that's, that sounds like a hit, you see. And you could hear the groans from the other guys going, oh, dear, you know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we, we, we arrive in L.A. We went to a, a studio called Sound City oh, yeah. in Van Nuys in California, where yeah. um, I think Dave Grohl bought the, right. the Neve, Neve desk. Correct. And and so we all went in there, and um, um, when it came to do I Love You, nobody really wanted to do it except me and the producer. So mm-hmm. basically, John Cuffley, the drummer, me on the Fender Rhodes, and beside me, John Ryan got in the talented Nicky Hopkins yeah. on Grand Piano. So he sat beside me as we did the backing track. Wow. And then I put the bass on it. I did all, I did all the vocals. I sang it, did all the harmonies. And then I got Pete, the guitarist, to play my guitar solo. Write the guitar solo? Yeah, I wrote the guitar. Yeah. I wrote everything. Wow. And, and of course, we, it ended up being a fantastic song. And um, not only that, John Ryan decided to invest in a 30-piece orchestra mm. to put real wow. strings on it, which also didn't go down well with the guys in the band. You know, they were like, oh, dear, more money, you know. Anyway, but the irony I was going get, to get back to was... We were all we were all um, thinking about publishing and publishing, and who wrote the songs would start to. Uh, we we had a we had a conversation and a meeting about who who wrote the songs should get the publishing, and you'll understand this. And um, and I was saying, well, you know, up, you know. For all these years, we've we've all been four, you know, it's been four ways, and. Um, and that's the way I wanted it to stay. Anyway, I lost the argument. And, of course, I Love You was 100% my song, and I got 100% of my song. <laughs> wow. <laughs> After losing the argument. <laughs> I lost the argument. Yeah, but you won the, won the war, so to speak, I guess. But, but not, not only that, if you look at some of the song titles of the songs other people were writing, like Making Love, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, there, there were a few a bit later on. 
you know, one more after midnight and um, whatever it is. I can't remember the songs off the top of my head. But everybody was writing love songs. Yeah. Really, with, 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 with you know, love song type lyrics. Um, so that's the irony to me. I write a song called I Love You. And it's too mushy for everyone. Which they didn't like. And um, <laughs> off it went. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was one of those just, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> man. And here it is. Also, oh, go ahead, Derek. Sorry, Nicky Hopkins, of course. Um, yeah. Wow. I mean, what a, what a pedigree that guy had, but he was fantastic and uh, lots of love to him, you know. Yeah. yeah. I thought maybe he had been the one on the roads, but he's on the grand piano. So yeah. I had a couple of notes. I, want, uh, I don't know if we're ready to close the loop on that song, but I had a couple of just observations I wanted to throw in there. Um, again, this one had almost 9 million Spotify spins, but we had focused only a few weeks ago on the, the intro of that song when we were, I guess, arguing about or defending whether this was a Yacht Rock tune, and I just could not get over the vocal entrance. I mean, it's almost naked, as I put it, with just the piano there. When I was younger man, I hadn't a care. And it is just so pure and so wonderfully hit. I mean, that, that I call it one of the great ballads of that era, for sure. And I, uh, I never tire of it. Um, and I did make a note on the guitar lead. I wrote that it's iconic and memorable guitar lead it would and so nicely understated and tasteful it would be easy to just say let's just blow a lead over this you know but instead it's its own melodic element and its own hook within the song is just so intentionally tasteful you know i love that how wonderful thank you very Mm -hmm. much yeah i've always thought that um you see i have some favorite guitarists you know i love people like dave gilmore yeah. Um, mm. who, who every solo is a musical, it's a tune. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've always thought you don't just throw, throw a solo away. It's got to mean something. Jeff Beck's another guy for doing this, just playing beautifully and music, melodic, you know. Yes. So, yeah, for you to say that, though, it's, that's very, mm-hmm. very kind. Thank you. Was there ever a take where a producer or someone in the room said, let's try something else here, and then they went back to it? Or was it always just, we're going to do this melodic lead? And- no, I, I was insistent that this is, this is the, the solo. This, this is, is it. You, you know, this is yeah. what I want, <laughs> if you <laughs> like. And, um, and that was it, yeah. Yes, I've, I've even got the original demo with that, that solo. So Wow. Ooh, I'd love to yeah, hear that. No kidding. Yeah, I know. Uh, I love you was in the key of C, and my demo, I did it in D, but way back then, you know, my voice was like, you know, yeah. So right. uh, I'll I'll send it you, you know, via the email. I'll send it you and just have a listen. It's amazing, really. One last note I wanted to point to, um, the very, very end, being a drummer, I just love the way this ends with the uh, drums leading into the final um, stabs with that quarter note triplet fill. Yeah. So I'm going to play that for the audience right here.
Now, I love that. That That, that is a drummer. I'm waiting for that moment. When the song starts, I'm just waiting for that moment. It just puts such a nice cherry on top. You see, I think, I think I've heard a lot of players play the song, you know, because I, I see things, you know, people copy it on YouTube and that. And I think John Cuffley, our original drummer, who originally was a jazz drummer before he became a rock drummer. So I think he's got that jazzy, swingy yeah. feel. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and he, what he played on that song at that moment in time was absolutely dead right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. He nailed it. Well, Derek, eventually... Um you leave the group, correct? Climax Blues Band continues on, and you leave, and then you've got some solo records out. Yeah, but, well, the, th- the, the thing about the Climax thing, and this is the truth, and uh, I don't mind you putting this out there, was we had an American tour booked. I Love You is at number 12, rising in the charts, and the band turned around to me and say, we're not going to go on the road to promote your career. Right? Astonishing. For what reason? For what reason? (laughs) (laughs) To promote my career. Mm. And so, I think the the worst thing I ever did was leave, really. uh, And I thought it was like a real real kick to, to think that they wouldn't support going out and promoting I Love You. And I think had we have stayed together... I think maybe it could have gone all the way, you know. Yeah, and it would have worked itself out maybe, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, we, need, we, we needed good management, which we didn't have at the time, and we needed, we needed to be sat down in a, a, in a room and say, look, guys, yeah, don't blow this, you know. Yeah. We've come this far, but, yeah. but you know, we, 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 we lost the plot, really. Yeah, it's easy to do when you're in the middle of it and everybody's got their own ego or their own thing that they want to get out of it. It, it it's so much e- easier to look back now and say we should have done this that or other thing yeah. so yeah the, th- the thing that gets me about it is we we started in 1968 and just a hard-working band you know and then 1976 we have a hit yeah four years later we have another one and it's just like it's the stuff dreams are made of you know it is yeah uh, and and we couldn't see it well i i saw it but uh, the other guys didn't so just one of those things it all fell yeah. apart it all fell apart and off you know well let's bring us closer to the present day because as i said you still record you've got yeah. uh is it two solo records out i've, I've got six six sorry beg your pardon close tom mm. yeah Except, I, I say I've got them out because of the current situation with, um, I don't know, Spotify, Apple Music, or whatever. I mean, I've got I've got my stuff on iTunes, but it's not like it used to be. Not at all. I I tend to write now for my own enjoyment, and then hopefully somebody else will like them as well. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can relate to that because I I do the same. <laughs> That's the best reason <laughs> to write anyway. So that's good. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm currently doing some stuff with the original bass player, who was Richard Jones, and um, he he was right there. We're both founding members, and we've found each other again. And we're, we're currently about twelve songs into a a collaboration, you know, of an album. Wow. And that'll be really interesting, you know, because totally different. When could we expect that to come out? Well, any time soon, really. I'll... Maybe we'll have you and him back on, too, to oh, talk yeah. about the new record. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, you're also doing another kind of writing, though. Yes. You have book. Uh, this is where I got confused. You have two books, correct? Two books? We have two books completed, and one, one has been released. It's called, it's basically a, a definitive history of the Climax Blues Band. The first one is called Using the Power. And uh, that was a limited edition run, actually. I think there was only about 500 of those made. Um, it's, it's like a co- co- coffee break book, you know. Yeah, okay. coffee, co- yeah, yeah. Co- coffee table book. Right. Um, w- wonderfully, um, well, I think wonderfully written and re- you know, sort of lots of photographs and... It's just a nice book. And is that a, sort of a retrospective on Climax Blues Band in your career? Is that what Using the Power is? Yeah, well, Using the Power was one of the songs on Gold Plated. No, not on Gold Plated, the Stamp album, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's going to be a second book, which basically the first book is from 1968 
1977, from Abbey Road to Couldn't Get It Right, and then from 77 to 1982, which covers the Warner Brothers years. And and that's an interesting story in itself, as I've tried to explain earlier, you know. (laughs) Goes through all that. There's a lot of artists and just personalities from the era that are releasing books in the last two or three years. We've talked about this. uh, Just last week, we had on Bill Schnee, the legendary producer, you know, arranger. We've talked about uh, John Ted Templeman's book. Right. Um, Lukather's book. Lukather's book. I'm reading Al Schmidt's book right now. So there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. 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 If you just stay there a second, I know, I know it's not good for radio, but I'll just show you guys. Ooh, he's showing us the cover right now. Nice, shiny, glossy, hard cover. That is really nice Very looking. Slick. So that is the uh, using the power, right? Or is that shining on? I can't. Yeah, see using the, the power. Using the power. Oh, a lot of pictures too. Just full of full of beautiful full, looking full stuff. Of stuff. Wow. And you said limited edition. Can we still get copies of this well, at? Uh, <laughs> The thing is, um, we we produced it our, ourselves, myself and the um, and the and the publisher. His name is Robert Forsyth. And what we thought we would do is just make a trial run and see how see if anybody was even interested. Anyway, we did actually get rid of five hundred. Great. Now, it, now in terms of expanding the field i think mo- most of the sales were were in in the uk just friends and families and stuff mm-hmm. and and we're in the situation where do, do how can we get this thing into america which is where it should be yeah mm. but you know it's a minefield of costs and i know yeah you know, <laughs> it's something me. we ha- it's something we have to research and I mean, even thinking about ebooks and all that stuff you know yeah. Um, it's early days, really. And then, all right, good. Well, um, moonshineeditions.com, is that where people can at least go check out the book? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. We'll link to that in the show notes, of course. And then the um, this new book coming out sometime this autumn is called Shining On, correct? Shining On. And where will that be available? Well, the same same website, Moonshine Editions, you know, log in your, your interest and... Yep, and there's a few spreads, and you can see some videos at this website, uh, some of the photos from the album. It's a really extensive website, so um, we're hoping that you're going to republish and get some more of those copies out. I, I do think our audience would be interested in, in picking a copy up for sure. So, See, the only, the only problem with, with this book, I mean, it, it, it's, it's pretty hefty. It is hefty. Right. And so postage from, say, the UK to the States, I mean, you're talking... Yeah, you almost need an American publisher so that... That's what we need. That's what we need. But we need to, say, research that. And, uh, I mean, I'd love to see it available everywhere, really. Cause it's, it's, a great, it's a really good read, you know, even though, I'm, even though I say it myself. <laughs> so, Derek, you started out, just, I just want to kind of go back and look at your entire career, and if you can think of a, a favorite anecdote or something that people who don't know your life story should know and, and want to know about um, because you have a really long resume, which you sent us and we'll put some of these highlights on the, on the, uh, in the show notes, but with all the musicians that you've toured with played with, is there a favorite moment in that industrious career or illustrious career? I should say that uh, you think either you look back on and it gives you the biggest chuckle or the warmest heart um, Either in the Yacht Rock era or not. Yeah, I think um, touring with uh, Leonard Skinner, the original Leonard Skinner, and going on stage singing with the girls Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> every, every night. So you were in Climax Blues Band touring with them, not you weren't playing yeah. with Skinner. Yeah. yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, Very cool. Well, I mean, it was just, um, just I mean, 50,000 people a night, you know. American blues meets Britain blues. Yeah, <laughs> wow. and they were they were the nicest people as well. They were really great. And tragically, of course, you know the yeah. Well, we all know what happened, but uh, we knew them all, and they were lovely people. Great. Well, you guys did tour um, with. I'm just going to rattle these names off: ZZ Top, Leonard Skinner, as you mentioned, Peter Frampton, BB King, Albert King, Jeff Beck, Joe Walsh, The Eagles, ELO. Uh, you put ELP, so Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, BTO, Alice Cooper, T-Bone Walker, Stevie Ray Vaughan. I mean, that's a who's who right there. Yeah, but my company. Fav- 
bad company. It goes on and on and on. So on and on and on. Yeah, little feet. Oh wow. Um, I'm sure there's tons more, but. The little factoid that caught my eye, and you can just tell us this story maybe as a final anecdote, is you played bass for Chuck Berry. I did. <laughs> in yeah. what capacity? We were, actually, funnily enough, we were in, uh, in Barcelona, and Chuck Berry was coming over to do a festival, and the promoter said, uh, look, guys, could you back him? You know, all he wanted was piano, bass, and drums, and we were over there anyway. So he said, yeah, sure. So Chuck Berry arrives, and um, I walked into his dressing room, and I said, Chuck, Derek Holt, my name's Derek Holt, I'm your bass player for tonight. What songs are you doing? He said, Chuck Berry songs. And then <laughs> and, and knock next time you want to come in. <laughs> so it wasn't a good start. Yeah. <laughs> but he grew to love me, I think, because um, yeah. we played really well. Because you could but, groove, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's quite a nice one on the CV, you know. Yes. Nice. Cool. <laughs> well, you knew it was 145, you just didn't know what key, right? So you just, as long as you knew what key you were in, you knew where it was going. I tell you what, he, he, was, he was cunning because he would start, say, some, something like um, Johnny Be Good in A... And just before the band came, I'd shout to the band, hey, you know, <laughs> I'd shout. And just before we were going to launch in A, he'd change it to C. <laughs> just to check you out. Yeah. Honestly, cool. he, was, he, was, he was naughty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it all worked out in the end, obviously, because he came to love you. So yeah, 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 yeah. It was great. Good. Well... Derek, this has been an absolute thrill. Uh, thank you for sharing these stories with us. Oh my Good gosh, luck yes. on everything you got going on now. We're going to be looking for the books, uh, the music. Yeah. I'm going to go, I think, go chill and listen to I Love You one more time now that I know the full story and oh, we'll I'll be contextualized. John, anything else you want to ask Derek before we go? Man, you're putting me on the spot. I really think we've covered it because I just wanted to know about, you know, the the hits and you told me more about I love you than I had any idea. So now, as Tom says, contextualizing it, picturing you, basically layering up the vocals, layering all putting all those parts in, kind of by yourself, puts yeah. it in an entire new perspective for me. Yeah, yeah. cool. Well, thank you, Derek, and uh, thank you. Send us um, when you have something on the book, and when you're ready to put out that new CD with your partner in crime from way back when. And we'll, maybe we'll have you back on the show to talk through that. That would be fantastic. This was good fun. Yeah. All right, thanks. Okay, happy sailing. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Perfect. Well, from across the pond, that's a pretty big sea to cross at a yacht. Man, you're looking for some bells. Ding, ding, I ding. am. Well, the Titanic sank that way. So that's true. Note of caution. But... Before we sail on into the lightning round, I've got some viewer mail. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'd love to hear it. So it's, it's kind of appropriate because in the Near Misses episode that we did a couple weeks ago. Yeah, we, that one got a lot of responses. I like that. It did. And we referenced Clybex Blues Band kind of without even knowing that we were going to be talking to Derek Holt. And we talked That's about That's where I mentioned it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and we brought up I Love You. I Love You's got like low scores on the Yatsky scale. And of course, we were here to defend all that. It's the lyrics. I'm sure it's the biggest thing. Could be. No, you know, and no personnel. Although, did you know it was recorded in L.A.? I never knew I know, that. I didn't know that either. So yeah, Maybe that's why it's so yachty. Ten points in its favor. <laughs> that's right. Well, listen to this. So a listener uh, by the name of Listener Gregory, which is how he goes by. His first name is Listener and his last name is Gregory? Yes. I think his first name is just Listener Gregory. Okay. Uh, well, he can uh, Oh, that's opine. right. We don't use last names, so it must be. That's right. So, um... He decided to crunch some numbers. He was intrigued by a couple of things we said. So he went into the Yatsky scale, mm-hmm. reconfigured some things, and he wanted to find out some, some interesting factoids. So what Gregory did, he crunched the numbers a few different ways. And I just wanted to go through these and get some of your take on them. The first okay. thing, I guess something we said was the, you know, the big variances in scores across the board on a given song. So somebody had a 74 and another person gave that same song a 43. And that, that kind of like just just seems odd to us, right? Yeah, because they're obviously working on a different scale. There's some personal opinions coming in there at that exactly. point. You know it. So he put together a, uh, a spreadsheet of the biggest variances in scores um, to show, like, I'll give you an example. There is a range, a, a, a variance of 60 points across the board between... What? Yes. 
Yes. 60 points on Ambrosia's nice, nice, very nice. 60-point difference. Wow. Now, obviously, they were looking at very different things. Yeah. Here's another interesting one for you, because you bring up this Hall & Oates thing. Private Eyes scores a 45 in the composite, but there is a variance of 39 points between the high score and the low score. Wow. Wow. So JD's got a 62, and Steve gave that a 23. Wow. So, they, yeah, they're hearing two completely different songs. Right. For sure. And we brought up Thunder Island. And we that did. It's 45, and that had a variance of 30 between the highest and the lowest. So I thought that was interesting. Mm, it is. It is really interesting. Now, uh, you have the data in front of you, too, so feel free to chime in on anything. He crunched the uh, numbers a different way. He said, what if, because you, you brought this up, what if we did it like Olympic scoring where we took out the, the high, high and score the and the low and just averaged the two in the middle? It only leaves two. You'd, you'd need uh, probably a panel of at least 10 or 12 people to make it a little more scientific, but we'll go ahead with that concept. Yes, so um, he crunched those numbers as well. He's got this whole spreadsheet of songs that, how their score would have changed had you done that. Yeah. And uh, the biggest gainer, would have been uh, this Blue Jean Committee, Catalina Breeze. <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of you know what that is? Be- yeah, because it's a, it's a spoof song. It's off of a Saturday Night Live bit. And so, you know, these guys started as sort of a comedy routine. So I guess it makes sense that that one would be all over the map, too. I kind of dig that song, though, too. I do, too. A lot so, of people do. If you throw out the 75 at the top and the 20 at the bottom that Hunter gave it, um, then it gains 11.25 points. It becomes Yachty. Yeah, it and goes I, from like a 67 to a 58, or I'm sorry, a 47 to a 58. Yeah, so it makes you wonder how many others um, would move up. So I guess he's got that in the list, too. That he we does. would have certain songs would move up, right? And there's, obviously, there's probably some that would move down and, and lose their yacht credit, wouldn't they? It, actually, if you just look at the sheer numbers, I think more actually go down. Um, I, I might post these. I'm going to get Gregory's permission to post these in a, a, a post at uh, yachtrockpodcast.com. So people can check this out. I think it's, it's really interesting data. He also did. He said, what if only one score dragged down the entire composite? I think that's what I said. So just getting rid of the bottom score. Yeah. Just getting rid of the bottom score. Again, <laughs> Blue Jean Committee, that Saturday Night Live gigs up there. Yeah. But look at what's number two. Do you see it? I know. How does, how does that happen? She's a beauty by the tubes. Wow. I mean, well, Dave, it doesn't become yacht, but it No, it up. doesn't. But Dave gave it a 10 and Hunter gave it a 50. So it was already a 40-point difference right there. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so you take out that 10 and then it moves up a little bit. Still not yacht. But again, here's more of the uh, private eyes would move up. Moves into it. it private yep. eyes would move into the, the boat. Barely. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And this Ambrosia, nice, nice, very nice song keeps coming back into play. So we'll post that as well. So here would be one last way to do it that I don't know if he's done, but maybe as a listener, if he hears this, maybe what you do is you say, if there is a one score that diverts from the rest by X, we'd have to figure out what that number would be. So you don't necessarily have to pull out the low number if they're all 40, 45, 42, you know. But if you have 40, 45, 60, and then 90, it's like, well, that 90 doesn't belong. Because yes. it's, you know, that'd be another way to look at it. So a combination. All right, Gregory, you have your homework assignment. Yeah. If any song diverts by more than 20 points from the mean or something like that. I don't know. I'm not a statistician, but there's probably another way to look at it like that. Well, that's what we have listener Gregory for. So right. um, I'll follow up with him and we'll see if we can get that data. And I'll put it all on YachtRockPodcast.com where you can find episode archives, you can find show notes, you can find even Yacht Rock-inspired merchandise and gear. So That's right. Before the end of Yacht Rock season, get your favorite t-shirt. And get your hoodie for the uh, the fall, you know? Yep, and protect yourself from lightning, because we are now going into the lightning round. Ouch. Yeah, it's hot. Okay, coming in hot. <laughs> All right, uh, you coming in hot on this lightning round, or am I? You go. All right. Well, I'm just going to stick with the theme here. We talked about I Love You, the hit, mm-hmm. this tune mm-hmm. that just gives me so many feels. It's in the 20s in this Yacht Rock scale, or the Yatsky scale, that we did not create, of course. Um, your thoughts? Is it, does it float your boat? I love it so much. It, if I have to remove my personal opinion for how much I like the song, I would probably have to say no, but I would score it significantly higher than they did. I would probably put this in the 40 area. I hear the more elements than obviously they do. Um, I hear obviously the electric piano. There's a certain amount of shuffle in the groove that's going on. I think the drumming is played very much in a yacht rock style. 
Um, if the big thing that brings it down is the lyrics, well, there's nothing I can do about that. I mean, it, it is, it, it's titled, I love you. And it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> unless that's being said sarcastically, which I don't get that in the lyrics, I guess it, that would be the killer, but no to being on the boat, but much closer than they scored it. Mm, I'm the exact opposite. I take everything you said as evidence that it should be way high. I, I put it in the sixties or seventies. I just, it, it's not only cause I love it so much. I feel I, you got the electric piano. Now I know it's recorded in the heart of you know, the Mecca of yacht rock. Right. And it's got those lush harmonies. There is some sort of, I don't know if it's a shuffle, but it's kind of in the halftime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyways, yes, yes, yes. Boy, there was some magic to Sound City, wasn't there? Oh, Jeez, Louise. Yeah. All right, so to me, case closed on that one. What okay. do you got? This does not really follow I within the um, the Climax Blues Band theme. I do get back to that when we get off the map, but this one had been kind of sitting there on my list for a while. And I want to ask you, uh, I know your thoughts on George Benson's Give Me the Night, but another song from that album that I'd like to get your opinion on, and that is called Love Times Love. Remember the days when we never had a die, and our dreams seem a million miles away. It floats my boat. You're thinking that maybe it got a little too disco-y or what, R&B-ish? Yeah, it kind of has a almost like if you were to take uh, disco and meld it with like the Quiet Storm format. And, mm-hmm. and both of those things kind of live right on the edge of Yacht Rock, but neither of them are in. And I think even combining the two feels a little too uh, late night Quiet Storm with a beat to me. So maybe it's Yacht Soul. Yeah, maybe. You think it could, it could be us? Anyway, it floats my boat. Okay. Um, somebody in the in the group posted it, and I heard it. And I'm like, eh, that's going on my boat. <laughs> so yes, what do you have for off the map? I'm going to do buried treasure first. I'm sorry. What do you have for buried treasure? Yes, yes, buried treasure. This is another one that had been sitting there for a while. Um, Randy Goodrum, you familiar with Randy Goodrum, songwriter? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He had a uh, a very yachty sounding solo album uh, in 1982 that was produced by Goodrum along with Elliot Shiner who Bill Schnee mentioned as being one of his friends. Uh, it's more of a New York personnel. It does have Jeff Percaro, but it also includes Steve Kahn, uh, some other New York uh, personnel, and I believe it was recorded in a New York-based studio. So it's kind of typical of that sound that was kind of East Coast meets West Coast, and this song is called Fool's Paradise. Yes, it has the word fool in the title. Yes, I am familiar with that because it went on my April Fool's Day on the yacht playlist. I bet it did, yeah. <laughs> it's got the fools. <laughs> and it's not just uh, it's not just the Trojan horse of using the fool word. I, th- I, I hear some lots of essential yachty elements. That's a good tune. Definite feels in that. It kind of has a little bit of a Michael Franks uh, thing to it as well. So Yeah, I hear that. East meets West. Well, I'm sticking. Uh, I'm sticking with the Climax Blues Band okay. for my buried treasure because it's a song that I I don't think I was that familiar with even as recently as a month ago. Certainly not before I got into yacht rock, but it's um, one of the more spun tunes on Spotify. So I checked it out. It's off Gold Plated, 1976. The song is called "Together and Free." Before you play it. Focus on the sax. There's a back-to-back sax solo followed by guitar solo. And he talked about how those two worked together and how they started working more of that in. Uh, So let's listen to that part, part of the sax solo into the guitar solo. Hit it. Where the sax part is, is like the band's laying down a rock and roll bed, but the sax player's doing jazz over the top of it. And that's this is the song that I asked the question: like, were they consciously putting some of those R and B elements into their blues band mix? And when you do, you get a little yachty. You do, you do. Yeah. 
Well, and then I'm going to uh, hand it back to you after I give you my pick for Off the Map. Okay. So for my Off the Map, this was a discovery that I thought I had in the New Coast arena because it was sent to me by Eric Maddox from New Coast. Okay. I thought this was more modern yacht because I, I check it out the tune. It's from a 2011 album, right? So I'm thinking, oh, it's modern Climax Blues Band. But apparently that is... 2011 on Spotify because it's a reissue or some remaster of oh, the 1979 right. album. Okay. Real to real. So that's how it fits off the map. It's not too far off. In fact, it's on the map. Anyway, the tune that Eric Maddox from New Coast uh, turned me on to has a very Pablo Cruz vibe, I think. And it's Children of the Nighttime. We're the children of the nighttime. And my mama loves us well. We're the children of So it's a little off the map because I'm not sure the entire song is Yachty, but it does have that three-part unison vocal thing yep. going on that you talked about. Um, but when you get to the sax solo again, it's like super Yachty vibe. Yeah, he plays really jazzy kind of sounding over the top. He's not your typical, you know, blow your brains out rock sax player at all. You yeah. know, you'd expect that maybe from a blues band, but, you know, they well evolved beyond just the blues, as uh, Derek had said. Yeah. Interestingly enough, my off the map comes from this same album. Now, why were you thinking it's off the because map? Because I think sonically it's close, but not quite there. Okay. So it it's it's barely off the map. But um, the one that I picked off of this one was the, the first track on the record, and that is Summer Rain. She was golden, just like the sunshine. She was cool like summer rain. So I chose to play that last section, uh, sort of the, it's almost a precursor to the guitar solo, because it goes back to the intentionality of this band, that they had that guitar and probably alto, maybe tenor, tenor sax in unison, playing that line, you know, they're building hooks within the song, it's not just here's the solo section, let somebody wail, it's very intentional, then they let the guitar player go nuts after that. Yeah, that that whole song is interesting because it does sound like they've got one foot in the canoe as a blues band and another on the dock, uh, you know, as a we're yeah. getting into R and B and yacht rock. You can hear some couldn't get it right in the groove for sure, for sure. And that uh, you know he mentioned it again, going back to there. You got a guitar, a sax solo and guitar solo in unison. It's so cool. Yeah, it's so cool. Anyways. Yep. Well, this was a, a joy. I learned a lot more about Derek and Climax Blues Band. It was really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Your take, any final takeaways? Well, I just, I, I, I love the, um, when, sometimes when I have a band that I have a stereotype image of as being just a blues band who had, who had an occasional hit, getting in and digesting this stuff and, and hearing things like what we just talked about with the intentionality of the solos, you realize that the level of, let's say intelligence, musical quote intelligence is so much higher than I thought it was in terms of building musical ideas and not just saying, well, let's just jam the blues and maybe we'll get lucky and have a hit, you know? Couldn't say it better myself. Ahoy ploy. (laughs) 